let's get ready to study God's Word. Episode of Rightly Divide the Word of Truth. This is Andrew S. Baker, and it's time to review another Sabbath School lesson. Please be sure to visit us at biblestudy.aspzone.com, where you can find a link to the current lesson study guide, additional Bible study resources, and all our previous episodes. Before we begin our study, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for your mercy to us, your goodness. We pray that you will be with us and give us wisdom and understanding. We ask you to help us to rightly divide your words of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Lesson number four of the fourth quarter of 2022 is entitled, The Old Testament Hope. The Old Testament Hope. Let's see where we go with this. This quarter, the title of our study is on death, dying, and the future hope. Okay, so we're going to look at the human experience, and we're going to look at it in the light of death and the resurrection. Blessed hope. Let's look at our memory verse, Hebrews 11, 17, and 19. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Okay. Before we get into... Before we get into the... um, The introduction, let's look at that verse just a little bit. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. The Bible counts him as actually offering up Isaac. That's how God counts it, because God had to stop him from taking the actual action. When he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. That's the other thing. Isaac, the son of promise, is considered the only begotten son, not Ishmael and not the children of Keturah that Abraham had because they were not the child of the promise. That is a way in which Christ is also the only begotten of the Father because he is child of promise in the incarnation. Accounting that God was able to raise him up. So Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, even though Isaac was the child of promise, because he determined that God would be able to and would have to resurrect him, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. So What Paul is saying is that Abraham went through, or 
or began, he committed to sacrificing Isaac, from which God interrupted him, prevented him, interrupted him, but accepted that he had done it. And as a result, because by faith, Abraham had anticipated having Isaac restored, he essentially did get him restored, figuratively. Right? So God counts Isaac as having died and therefore counts him as being resurrected. And so Isaac is a figure of Christ. Okay, let's go to the introduction. The Old Testament hope is grounded not on Greek ideas about the natural immortality of the soul, but on the biblical teaching of the final resurrection of the dead. But how could a no longer existent human body, cremated into ashes or destroyed by other means, be brought to life again? How can someone who has been deceased, perhaps for centuries or even millennia, recover again his or her identity? These questions lead us to reflect on the mystery of life. We are alive and enjoy the life that God graciously grants us each day. Even without beginning to understand the supernatural origin of life, we know that in the beginning God brought life into existence from non-life through the power of his word. So if God was able to create life on earth the first time from nothing, why should we doubt his capacity to recreate human life and restore its original identity? This week, we will reflect on how the notion of the final resurrection unfolded in Old Testament times with special focus on the statements of Job, some psalmists, and the prophets Isaiah and Daniel. Okay, Sunday we're going to start with Job. I shall see God in my flesh. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Obviously, that's the third coming, not the second coming. Um, it's not clear whether or not Job knew which coming this was associated with. He just knew that at the latter day, that his Redeemer would stand upon the earth. And we know that Christ is not standing on anything physical of the earth at the second coming, but his foot will cleave out a space at the third coming. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. All right? So Job understood that he was going to have to come back to some state to be able to see God. He was not going to go see God as a ghosty figure. So he knew that he had flesh now, that some time would pass, because it would be the latter days, some time would pass, and then he would be restored in some fashion to be able to see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. So obviously, the reins being consumed within him would occur sometime between now and when he actually got to see God. John 1.18 says, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Not sure why they put that verse there, because this verse is specifically 
outlining that it is not the father that we have seen in in the course of humanity whenever we have seen god it is in fact the son and then timothy verse timothy 6:16 who only hath immortality that's god dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto whom no man hath seen nor can see to whom be honor and power everlasting amen we will eventually see god but we're not seeing him right now okay under what circumstances was he expecting to see god after everything was restored or at least after the millennium right because he was going to see god after a resurrection after a resurrection Job did not realize that he had become the epicenter of a great cosmic struggle between God and Satan. Afflicted by those struggles, Job regretted his own birth and wished he had never been born. Yet his unconditional faithfulness to God is well expressed in the words, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even imagining that soon his life would be at an end, he kept his assurance that death would not have the final word. With strong conviction, he stated that although he would die, his Redeemer would one day stand up and he, Job himself, would see God in his own flesh. This is unmistakable glimpse of the resurrection. Okay, so that was his hope. Even in the midst of something that was unfair, even though he was going through an experience that was not nice, he still held on to the future, the promise, the blessed hope. Okay, the power of the grave, Monday's lesson. There's some verses. They trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches. None of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. For he seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish man, brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. Like sheep they are laid up in the grave, death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall consume in the grave in their dwelling. Okay, the power of the grave. The power of the grave is pretty substantial. Only God has power over the grave. Everyone else is slated for the grave on some level. As Job stated centuries earlier, naked came I from my mother's womb, naked shall I depart. The psalmist points out that both the fool and the wise die, so does the preacher. Ecclesiastes has a lot of language that says, hey, Everybody, doesn't matter. The animal dies, the human dies, the wise man dies, the fool dies. The difference is that the righteous have a hope that they will awaken again at an appropriate time because the wicked will also awaken again. Not at a good time. They're going to awaken at a bad time. 
the righteous will awaken to see the coming of the Son of Man and be taken with him. Some wicked will be awakened at that time too. That's a special resurrection mentioned in Revelation 1.7 and also in Daniel 12.1. But after the millennium, there will be a second resurrection. Revelation 20 talks about it. Right? And that resurrection, we don't want to be part of. We do not want to be part of. Okay? Consistent with the Old Testament hope, this statement is not suggesting that at the time of his death, the soul of the psalmist would fly immediately into heaven. The psalmist is simply saying that he would not remain forever in the grave. A time would come when God would redeem him. Redeem him from death and take him to the heavenly courts. Once again, the certainty of the future resurrection is depicted, bringing hope, assurance, and meaning to the present existence. So the wise will receive a far more glorious and everlasting reward than that which the foolish could gather for themselves during this short life. And it's not just the shortness of the life, which certainly is a factor, right? Certainly is a factor because in eternity, even if you got a penny a day, that's going to add up in eternity. That's going to add up when there's no end. All of the people that are on this planet that are rich into the hundreds of billions of dollars and how massive those numbers look to us today and how they'll never really ever be able to spend those things. Um, sure, that's true. All of that is true. But pennies in eternity will be of greater value because infinity is infinity, doesn't end. But beyond that, beyond that kind of concept, um, I think it's also important for us to recognize that we are going to see a lot more than just material wealth, right? We're going to see a lot more than just material wealth. Being able to have what God intended for us to have in Eden, glorified body, no sin, no temptation, being in the presence of God, being able to speak to the angels, seeing all the folks that ever lived and have been redeemed. There's value in that that exceeds streets of gold and all the other things that we often think of about eternity. What are the ways that you have been able to see the folly of those who trust in their own wealth and accomplishments? <laughs> Better question is, do we notice the folly of trusting in our own wealth and accomplishments? It's not only the very rich that have that problem. Sometimes it's actually dumber because those of us who, who trust in wealth don't really have anything that, that, uh, that amounts to wealth. Our little piddly earnings that we're still so focused on, it might be more excusable to get carried away when you have billions of dollars than when you have thousands or tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands, right? Our accomplishments, our wealth, our attainments are nothing 
We should not allow those things to distract us. How can keeping your eyes on the cross protect you from falling into the same error? Well, if your eyes are on the cross, they're not on the other things. We can't be on both, cannot serve God and mammon. So if we are focused on God, if we are focused on the eternal promise, then we're not going to be focused on the foolishness around us. Tuesday's lesson, from the depths of the earth. Okay, let's take a look at Psalm 71, from the depths of the earth. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Never let me, let me never be put to confusion. Okay, let's look at some of these, these verses. Verse 12, O God, be not far from me. O God, make haste for my help. I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of thy righteousness. Cast me not off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength faileth. That's verse 9. Praise thee more and more. Verse 20. Thou which has showed me great and sore trouble shall quicken me again and bring and shall bring me up again from the depths of the earth. A couple of ways for that to be looked at. That could be a state of depression. It can be burial, right? Restoring from burial. But it shows that God will bring us back. It can be from discouragement, but it can also imply resurrection. The important thing is that God can bring us out of any circumstance, whether it be a physically debilitating circumstance, mentally debilitating, spiritually debilitating, emotionally debilitating. doesn't matter. God can bring us out of them. Whether it's despair or discouragement, God is able. Wednesday's lesson, your dead shall live. Let's look at some of those verses. Isaiah 26, 14. They are dead, they shall not live. They are deceased, they shall not rise. Therefore thou hast visited and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. In verse 19, thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they rise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Okay? Lots of, lots of um, promises in this verse. I will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. That's verse 3. Trust ye in the Lord forever for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Okay? Verse 20 is very interesting. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a moment till the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. Right? That's a promise of protection during the time of trouble. In the time of trouble. 
We have uh, Malachi 4.1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day shall come that shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, and shall leave them neither root nor branch. That's after the millennium. That's the final destruction of the wicked. Okay. But the promised dead shall live. Right? On one side, the wicked shall remain dead without ever being brought to life again. That's, at, that's after the second death. And on the other side, the righteous dead will be raised from death to receive their blessed reward. Okay? Isaiah 25 highlights that the Lord God will swallow up death forever. We spoke about that in last week's lesson. There comes a point after which death itself will die so that there can be no more death. Final resurrection will bring together all the righteous from all ages. No, I wouldn't call that the final resurrection, right? Technically, it's the first resurrection where that happens. The final resurrection is the second resurrection and the second resurrection is to resurrect all of the, the wicked before they're ultimately destroyed. So the last resurrection that's done is not done for the people that are good. It's done for the people that are bad. We should be careful with the language. Imagine if we didn't have any hope, any assurance, any reason to think that our death was anything but the end of everything. And then even worse, Anyone who ever knew us would be gone, and soon it would be as if we had never existed. Yeah, that's Paul says that if in this life only we had hope of Christ, we would be, of all men, most miserable. No, the blessed hope, it's, it's good what God offers us in this life. It's good what Christ has done for us and offers us in this life. But it is the blessed hope, the hope of life to come. Even superstitious nations, even, even heathen and false religions all look forward to some sort of afterlife. Because no matter how well you do in this life, it's not long enough to make it a good enough scenario. There's always some sort of afterlife. Right? Even Satan's lie tries to stretch out this life by suggesting that there's no death. Ye shall not surely die. The whole point is, without an eternal life sequence, you can't get the best possible scenario. Okay. Now let's look at Thursday. Those who sleep in the dust. Those who sleep in the dust. As we'll see, the New Testament talks a great deal about the resurrection of the dead. And as we've already seen, the idea of the resurrection of the dead appears in the Old Testament as well. These people in Old Testament times had the hope of the final resurrection that we do. Martha, living at the time of Jesus, already had this hope in John 11. No question, even then, the Jews had some knowledge of the resurrection the last days, even if not all believed it. Yeah, because the Sadducees had some weird ideas. But the fact is that the Bible has taught this from the beginning. It has taught the resurrection. Paul references Abraham believing that there would be a resurrection. God told him plainly, your 
children of the fourth generation will come out of Egypt, but you go rest in peace. If God promised him a land, but told him that he was going to rest first, by definition, he's going to have to be resurrected at some point to experience this land because he did not get his inheritance before death. Okay. Now, Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12 is a pretty cool passage. Let's look here. Daniel chapter 12, first few verses. And at that time, that's at the time of trouble. At that time shall Michael stand up, a great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Listen to this. Many of them, not all, many. Some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Okay, notice the timing. The timing is at the time of trouble, basically toward the, the second coming. Some that sleep in the dust, many that sleep in the dust shall awaken. Right? Many that sleep in the dust shall awaken. The first group that will awaken will be all the righteous. But some of the wicked will awaken at that time as well. Jesus indicated that there were some that would awaken because they would see him coming in the clouds of glory. Right? So many that sleep shall awake, some of those to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. But many of the wicked will stay dead. So there'll be a few wicked that are resurrected, all the righteous that are resurrected, and... Most of the wicked will stay dead at that time, at the second coming. Okay. Graves are open. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. All who have died in the faith of the third angel's message come forth from the tomb glorified to hear God's covenant of peace with those who have kept his law. They also which pierced him. Revelation 1.7 Those that mocked and derided Christ's dying agonies and the most violent opposers of his truth and his people are raised to behold him in his glory and to see the honor placed upon the loyal and obedient. This is from the Great Controversy, page 637. So here the servant of the Lord is making it clear that there will be some folks that raise... Some folks that are, are arisen at that point to see the coming because they didn't believe it. And the Lord is like, oh, no, you're going to see it. You're going to see the second coming the way that I told you it was going to happen. You're going to see it. Right? You're not just going to get up at the end of the millennium when the new Jerusalem is on the ground. No, you're going to see the second coming. Now, there's a whole paragraph here discussing, or I should say speculating on what it will be like and how God is going to resurrect and, you know, years and years of destruction and et cetera and so on. God created life from nothing. God created the universe starting with nothing. It is not impossible at all for that same God to preserve in whatever way he needs to preserve 
the uniqueness of every individual that will be resurrected. He has not explained it to us. He didn't explain to us how he did the creation. <clears throat> right? And when I say that, yes, we have the creation account, but there's no explanation in there. That's a lot of shortcutting. That's basically on the first day he said X and X happened. On the second day he said Y and Y happened. And he formed this and this happened. That's all we're told. We're not told how. We're not told the mechanism. We're not given a whole lot of details. So there's no real reason to speculate on it. Doesn't make any sense. We can't begin to imagine what was involved. All we can consider is this. Either God decided it was not necessary for us to know that, so he just didn't tell us. Like it was simple, it was easy, but he chose not to tell us. Or, or, it's hard. It's hard to explain and it's not important enough to tell us now. Right? And those are not necessarily the only two options. Those are the two of the easiest options. It's easy to tell us, but he felt like he didn't need to do that because, and so he didn't. We just need to accept it by faith. Or it's like, no, it's difficult. And I don't want you guys distracted by that. I just need you to understand that I created everything and that I have redeemed everything. And I want you to trust me and we will have an entire eternity to get through the, the nuances of all that information. Here's a quote from SDA Bible Commentary, volume four, page 1143. The life giver will call up his purchased possession in the first resurrection. And until that triumphant hour, when the last trump shall sound and the vast army shall come forth to eternal victory, every sleeping saint will be kept in safety and will be guarded as a precious jewel who is known to God by name, by the power of the Savior that dwelt in them while living, and because they were partakers of the divine nature, they are brought forth from the dead. Okay, so what this tells us is that whatever mechanism God needs in order to keep everything the way that it needs to be, he's got it under control. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to speculate on it. Don't have to waste a lot of time thinking about it. We just have to recognize that he's got this. And that's it. Right? Fighting about it, discussing it, arguing about it. It's pointless. It's pointless because we're guaranteed to be wrong. And thinking of all the things that we could be racking our brains about and focusing on, getting this wrong is silly. We have a couple of discussion questions here. It says, there are an estimated 2 trillion galaxies out there. Every time we call that number, it's bigger and bigger. Each made of billions and billions of stars. And some of these stars have planets orbiting them, just like the planets in our solar system orbit the sun. Now think about the incredible power of God who not only created all of these, but who sustains them and knows them by name. That, by the way, is impressive, right? To even have two trillion, I mean, those are two trillion galaxies, right? Two trillion galaxies, each galaxy of which can have billions of stars. So even if he only has to remember the names of the galaxies or the galaxy clusters, that's an insane number of names. And here we're being told 
that he would know the names of all the suns, the planets, and their moons. Because, listen, if we know the names of suns, planets, and moons in all of these various solar systems, not all of them, we, we know our solar system and we know some of the ones that we've paid attention to. But if we have cataloged it, you can't imagine that God hasn't. And so just think about that. He's keeping track of all this stuff. That is incredible. That is incredible. So he maintains it, keeps track of it, etc. Hebrews 11 highlights the faithfulness and expectations of many of the so-called heroes of faith of ancient times. How can this chapter enrich our understanding of the hope that the characters in the Old Testament had even before the resurrection of Jesus? Well, they trusted all of those things by faith. They trusted God by faith. So it didn't matter that it was before the resurrection. They had to accept it by faith. The whole plan was laid out to them. They accepted the plan by faith. And we can too. We can too. Let's review our verse, which says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Hebrews 11, 17 and 19. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your mercy and goodness and your love to us. We invite your presence to be with us. We pray, Lord, that you will uh, bless us, help us to be like the Old Testament believers. Help us to trust your promises by faith. Help us to look forward to the resurrection. Help us to look forward to the blessed hope. Please bless us, Lord. Help us not to waste brain power on things that you've got under control, but help us to focus on those things that you want us to contemplate and that we will grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. You can email us at BibleQuestions at ASBZone.com. We look forward to hearing from you, whether you have questions, comments, suggestions, or concerns. Don't forget to check out the full description of this episode at BibleStudy.ASBZone.com to ensure that you can access the linked resources and any related podcast episodes. This podcast is available on all the major platforms, such as Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, and more. Please remember us in your prayers. Until we meet again next time, may God richly bless you as you prayerfully study and share His Holy Word.